This is Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn practical strategies to drive consistent and predictable growth. If you want to drive more consistent growth, then part of that means being able to identify the most effective use of your time, energy, and money when it comes to acquiring new customers. In this episode, we talk about just that. You'll learn how John Short does that for his clients using the predictable demand system. You'll also learn how to identify who your best customer is using a few key metrics, how you can create demand for your product or service through organic content, and a ton more. Here's the interview. John, thank you so much for coming on Metrics and Chill. Like you said, when you when you got on the call, we finally made it happen. We had a bit of rescheduling and stuff. So I'm really excited to be chatting with you. Thanks for being willing to jump on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Um, so give us the 30 second pitch for listeners of compound growth marketing. You're the CEO. Give like, what is it? What do you do? Who's a good client for you? Um, what are some of the pains that you solve? Yeah. So um, compound growth marketing is a full funnel demand generation firm. So we have pillar focus areas in account-based marketing, SEO, PPC, and then revenue operations. And we were really built on the thesis that top of funnel momentum drives down funnel conversion for the customers we're working with. So we have a process that where we go into a customer's CRM, analyze the data, look at lifetime value, look at conversion rates to the funnel, look at um, deal velocity to understand where who a company's best customers are how we can make the sales team more efficient and what channels drove those customers in. We've worked with Airtable, Code Academy, AppDynamics, uh, Predictable, Predictive Index, worked with a wow. ton of B2B SaaS companies between 10 and 200 million in revenue to help them build out their demand generation teams and strategies. And, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, yeah, congrats on all the success with it. Um, I know it's got to be filled with uh, like, you know, running a business is is no joke. So I'm sure it's not all, you know, sunshine and rainbows, but it's exciting to hear about the growth that you've attained. Um, and today for listeners, we're going to be talking about uh, a system you all have created that you work with with clients. So let's start the interview this way. Um, what is the, you know, in a sentence or two, what's the predictable demand system? Yeah, so a lot of companies or a lot of people have playbooks that they look to execute when they're joining a new company, or a lot of agencies have playbooks they're looking to execute. And I've never been a huge fan of that. I think that if you look at the predictable demand system, it is a way of asking questions of the companies that we're working with and of the systems that they've implemented to look at where the best, most efficient use of their time, energy, and money is for acquiring new customers. So we typically come in in the first 45 days and look at what the digital ICP of that customer is, build out segmentation, size the opportunities from an SEO, PPC, and ABM perspective to help really build out a roadmap and guide what customers should be, where customers should be investing long-term in order to drive results. And so we've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of customers and help them grow pipeline, help them drive revenue and help them uh, improve the efficiency of their sales team. So it's been a lot of fun. So walk me through, I guess, a, a fun way to start this would be if if a B2B leader is listening 
and wants to implement some of this framework in their own company at like a high level. Obviously, they're not going to come in with your team and expertise and everything, but kind of like, is there a progression? Like, I know you said it's fairly custom, it's fairly dependent on the customer, but what's the progression that maybe like you would walk through when you're coming in and a client wants to drive more sustainable growth? Where are you starting with? What, what are sort of like, where does your focus go? Uh, it's definitely on the customer who, who a company's best customers are. So we, we can talk about the predictable demand system, but a lot of it came from when I was in my career going from job to job to job. So I, th I think the, the kind of guiding light for me in all, in all the different places where I took over demand generation and ultimately built out those teams was looking at who the customer was and where they're hanging out. So when I was at LogMeIn, it was a huge demand capture play. And we were really focused on um, paid search, looking to acquire customers that way and drive virality through the freemium product. But there was already a lot of demand in place. When mm -hmm. I went to Yesware, um, the, nobody knew that you could easily sync uh, all your emails with Salesforce and store them easily or track emails. And so we had to build demand for that industry and build, uh, like educate the industry and teach people about products like this and how they existed. And so there was a shift, right? And when I joined both of those companies, I there was research that I had to do about the customer. There was research I had to do about our sales motion that all helped kind of identify what the best solutions were for identifying the channels we should be executing on. So um, so at a high level, it's thinking about the customer and analyzing where, you know, how, what their preferred buying methods are, how they're finding out about products like yours. Um, it, yeah. Oh, go and ahead. is that, is that always a blend of like, do you recommend businesses always take that blended approach? Um, I guess like you, you mentioned demand capture or demand creation, which like, I'm a fan of that distinction. I think it's helpful. Um, yeah. I know that this is, this is a hot like topic, you yeah. know, depending, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. For me, I'll, I'll dumb it down. I'll, I'll summarize it this way. Um, I have found it helpful to delineate between people that are actively looking for your solution, like the kind of content you want to yeah. give them to help them answer their questions and have a good buying experience is different than maybe the approach you're going to take with people who have never heard of you or not like shop around right now, or don't feel like they feel the pain that you solve. So broadly distinguishing between those two approaches is that something you're a fan of in general or does it really depend on the company and the stage and what their goals are most of the companies we work with need a hybrid so a lot of the the companies that we work with i think SaaS has become fairly mature i think new opportunities will arise um through use cases around artificial intelligence but most of the companies we're working with need a blend of demand capture and demand creation type activities to stay top of mind with with customers throughout the funnel. And so that is part of what we're looking at here when we go into the database and analyze the customers. First thing we're typically doing is augmenting the database with data augmentation if they don't have it already, like a Zoom info or Clearbit. Uh, and once the database, once the data in the database is clean, we are looking at who a company's best customers are by looking at 
sales efficiency metrics and understanding once we have people in the door, how do they convert best? Uh, or where, like, how do they convert best? So one of the things we pull from that is lead qualification criteria and lead prioritization criteria. We're big proponents and we're big believers that qualified leads should go on two axis. One is focus on intent. Are they raising their hand? Are they showing active interest in your product? And then the second is match to ICP. Do they have the right job title? Are they in a company in the right industry? Is the company the right size? Where's the company's revenues and other characteristics like what technologies are that company using? Um, so for instance, at, at Yesware, qualification for a lead for us was, is this company using Salesforce? Because we had a really tight integration with Salesforce. That was a good indicator that that could potentially be a good lead for us. So I think it needs to be that uh, intent and uh, match to ICP and those people in the top right-hand quadrant are the ones who are going to be most ready to talk to your sales team, who your sales team's most prepared to talk to. Um, and then from there, we want once we kind of understand what that qualified lead is, we want to analyze the database and look at the places where those customers have previously come from before. Uh, and start to build out a buyer intent journey to, or start to build out a buyer journey to identify all the different places where we can be getting in front of that customer. Um, okay. Usually that's a mix of LinkedIn, programmatic advertising, Google search, SEO, uh, email, those types of things. Right. And that's where that delineation of like, are they actively looking for the product then serve them this content or are they not aware of us yet? Then we'll go with this content. Yeah. Um, the, so this, this is something that interests me a lot. Um, I kind of like geek out whenever I get the chance in the podcast, when people bring up or want to, you know, zero in on like you have identifying who the best customer is, um, you know, maybe for some, for, for a B2B company that hasn't gone through this exercise before, I know there's a lot of hesitancy, for example, among agency owners to like niche down or anything. Um, there's like reluctancy, reluctancy, uh, to niche down or say that you serve this one industry or whatever it may be, or even, you know, products like data box that are broader, like they have a broader use case. What are some ways, um, if a leader was interested in exploring this and kind of opening up their CRM or looking at the data, are there, is it completely dependent on the customer and their unique situation, or are there a few data points or criteria that you find are often indicative of like, Hey, let's start to head more this way. This like, you know, it, it, like for example, is does company size recurringly come up as a big driver of like, we should really delineate our, like narrow our ICP based on this or revenue size or like, yeah, are there are there a few data points or metrics that especially come up, or is it really just dependent on the situation of the client you're working with? Uh, no, so there there are those metrics. Like usually, each client has a unique set of data points that we're paying attention to, but certainly company size comes up often. Um, job title, uh, and then I think industry is also one that people need to pay more pay attention to more than they pay attention to company size because that can oftentimes be an indication of how lucrative the industry is how much how much uh how much they're willing to spend and also um the status like all all the especially these days we see 
the the trajectory of different industries are very it's very different depending on mm, um, yeah where what what uh playground you're playing on i guess or what industry you're in um so those are really important and then depending on the product you see um <clears throat> or depending on the company that we're working with it could be you know technology is a huge differentiator into the types of customers that you should be working with revenue size uh, makeup of the company um uh and, and then paying attention to different intent signals, right? So like a property tech company may be really dependent on understanding when somebody signs a lease, that can be really important data. Um, at, uh, at some of the companies I've worked with previously, it can be, you know, around the timing of, of raising a, a series B round of funding, maybe a signal that they're about to really start ramp up hiring on their sales team and and they need to bring uh and and they're ready to bring on a new crm or new software to help with with that process okay what role what role um i've got a couple more questions down this line so what role does um in your opinion does uh qualitative insights like i'm i'm imagining I guess as, as a specific example, besides looking at firmographics or quantitative data, maybe in the CRM or what like data tools are telling you, like company size or revenue size, listening to sales calls on Gong or something and listening for like, what's the pain that they came to solve? Maybe your tool has three solutions and everyone who's retaining is coming to solve this like one solution. Like, do, do you find most of the magic is kind of as, as simple as the firmographic or how much, what... Or, or is the qualitative sort of just as important in its own right? And there's almost like a niching down more companies could think about doing around the qualitative. Yeah. So we love when companies have gong or course data that we can li listen into that oftentimes is like there, when we're running data analysis, there's a lot of different ways that the data can take us, but listening to that qualitative data like oftentimes those are insights that we can turn into data points that we can assign to customers and kind of being um, in helping to qualify them. So that, you know, doing the research in Gong and Chorus helps us to kind of understand the intent signals that we should be looking for uh, from the various platforms that we work with. So I think it's uh, incredibly important. We think about the entire buyer's journey, right? And we map it into people who are in the awareness phase, but within our target ICP, people who are having a pain. I love dealing with this kind of pain that people are having right before they go into market. So they may not know your solution exists. There's tons of creative ways to identify customers who are in that pain point don't quite know what your solution is and are getting ready to jump into being in market. Then you have in market, then you have people who are customers. The other thing that I love about what you were talking about just there is the CRM is the front end of what marketing does for the sales team. So mm -hmm. I like to think about the CRM in terms of a UI where we're trying to surface the right information at the right time. So, um, you know, the 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 quantitative data points that we put in there are really important, but if possible, it's also important to put in the qualitative data points that are going to help set your sales team up to have a really good first conversation. That could be a question in the form, like HubSpot used to ask, 
what's the biggest pain that you're dealing with mm -hmm. right now? And people used to answer that. That helps set your sales team up for a really good conversation. It could be like a news feed about the company. So, you know, really successful for me in my 20s as I was building out my network was at like congratulating in the first line, a three-line email, congratulating them on something that had recently happened at their company, two, telling them what I was trying to get better at, and three, asking them if they'd be willing to jump on a call to help give me advice. And so I oh, always I like think that. about that email. Uh, it was incredibly successful. It helped me build a, a really nice network. Um, and, and, you know, it's something that I use uh, when I'm doing sales outreach these days or trying to re-engage customers. And that all that information, right? The more we can feed sales reps inside the CRM to give them the information they need, the better the first call is going to be, the better their outreach is going to be to re-engage customers. So these are all really critical uh, data points and and pieces of data that, data that we can be giving our sales teams. Hey, just a quick interruption. In past episodes, you've heard guests give advice like... The first step is just like actually measuring and monitoring, right? Which sounds very fundamental, but a lot of companies don't even do that, right? If you ask for like, hey, do you have a monthly kind of report of like what's happening in the funnel? It's like, oh, well, we have this over here and we have this over here and we have the traffic data and GA. So the first thing I think is like build out, you know, a presentation uh, that you're updating every single month or it's way easier if you have all this stuff being centralized somewhere and can look at it. And I promise that's completely unprompted. We try to book smart B2B leaders and learn how they're driving more predictable growth and they end up sharing advice like that. And Databox makes it easy to do all of that and more. You can track your marketing, sales, revenue, and CS performance all in one place. It lets you build custom dashboards and view metrics from over 80 tools side by side. You can schedule PDF reports that automatically update your data in real time and send to your team or your clients. You can even set up custom Slack alerts that alert you when you hit your goals or when numbers spike or dip. If you want to try it totally free, just go to databox.com or click the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. I love it. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a repeat if, if anyone's listening and you know you, you listen regularly you'll have heard me say this at least once before but it, um for anyone who's you know new listening an example of what you know you're talking about here um we had mj peters in the show and she shared a specific example of like supplying the intent that the sales team needs to know to have a better call right. with like they would do a unique form ID on every use case page. So even yeah. though it looked the same and to like to the user, it's like, you're just booking a call. Then it allowed marketing to tie that, you know, to, to the upcoming call and say, Hey, this person like specifically booked a call on this use case. So lead with that. And the, you know, yeah. the, the AE then would make sure that they would like start there versus like, you know, 30 minutes into the pitch, like, so what brings you in today? It's like, you know, right. like you've already like lost their attention and you should know why it's, they would know why they came in. It's all these intent signals, which can help the rep. And part of it is the data you put into the CRM. The other part of it is meeting with the reps. So they understand the significance of all the different lead funnels of all the different things that are coming through their funnel at a given time. We, one of my first customers uh, I went through a secret shopper exercise. I went onto their site. I downloaded an ebook. I got an email from the sales rep a couple of days later that said, Thank you for downloading the marketing ebook. 
uh would you like to jump on a call to talk about x y and z and i was like what what is this marketing ebook and then i just realized that's how the asset that i had downloaded from this company was labeled in the crm it just said you know oh my gosh. short had downloaded a marketing <laughs> ebook. it wasn't it was a property tech company it was not a it, like for somebody who wasn't in marketing to get that email it would have been like they wouldn't have understood why they were getting this email. Right. Yeah, yeah. They'd have been like, wait, what are you talking like, about? I, thought, I almost thought it was like an internal email coming from one of the sales reps about a, a marketing ebook. And uh, and it just showed one, like, you know, we need to be very careful about the data we put in front of the reps because they're going to use it and they may not, if they don't understand the intent or mm. uh, the significant, not the intent, the significance of what that piece of content is like that then it's not going to help them if it had you know been like an office moving guide book or if it had been something else like that like they would have had a better indication of the troubles that i'm having and that would have given them a better hook to get in the door with prospective customers but nobody's going to respond to an email <laughs> Nobody who's in facilities management is going to respond to an email about a marketing ebook. So, right. Yeah, no, that's wild. Um, one, one last thing I want to touch on before we kind of move into, um, you know, some of the ways that you've done this in the past with specifically on like the people that are feeling the pain, but not yet in market. I want to like dive yeah. into that. And I know you've got some cool examples of ways that you've done that. Um, we we covered a lot around quantitative things to look for some low-hanging quantitative fruit some ways you can pair that with qualitative fruit to find out who your best customer is and one thing it's a simple kind of silly question but when if a, if a listener is asking what does best mean what are you looking for when you say best right so like they've got all these customers that have technically handed the company money or closed or expressed intent what does best mean? Is this, is this, do you, are you measuring this by filtering by like longest retained, you know, the ones who upgraded the most, how are you defining this to really like, I would imagine listeners who want to try this experiment can go in and they can find maybe a lot of, com, you know, firmographic commonalities and say, okay, yeah, like these two industries tend to be overrepresented or, uh, this size of company, this revenue or people that use this tool, um, but when you say the best, what's that further thing that they're narrowing down by, if that makes sense? Yeah, so it's a mix of typically there's a lot of different factors that can go into that. But most of the time, what we're focusing in on is deal velocity. So how quickly that deal moves through the funnel and then the lifetime value of the customer and figuring out the the balance between those. And if we don't have lifetime value uh, information, we look at you know, initial contract size or first year contract size or first year value of that customer. So we're paying attention to those factors to kind of understand on a deeper level where they are, because those are going to be the things that make our sales team be most efficient, right? Mm. If, if you can find deals that you can close the quickest and, and are worth the most value to you, that's a winning yeah. game. Um, how often should companies go through this exercise in your opinion? Like I know if companies are especially early stage, it can be really hard. Like maybe they're still struggling to find, you know, if you adhere to the idea of product market fit, like they're still, you know, kind of thrashing around looking for like who might be the best use case of their product or their service. 
um, maybe more mature ones are fairly honed in. Like how often do you recommend people go through the data and kind of iterate on this and take what they're doing and refine their messaging or their ICP based on it? Yeah. I have a lot of answers to that question. The first um, is yearly. I think you should at least be looking at this data yearly to understand, to reevaluate your qualification criteria, to reevaluate your ICP. Um, For early stage companies, I can't give as good of an answer. I like my experience is mostly working in companies five, 10 to 200 million in revenue. Um, But I think it's one of the things that holds companies up because I think the product at certain stages in a company's life starts to take on a life of its own in terms of the customers who it best caters to. And what can really slow down companies is misalignment between the marketing and sales team in terms of who the audience is, who they're going after. And you often see sales say, you know, I want to put this team on my shoulders and we're going to start going outbound to these XYZ type accounts because we really want those, uh, because we really want larger average deal sizes and marketing continues to try to fill up the funnel with a ton of volume. And that really, I mean, when you have two go-to-market functions who are going after kind of distinctly different markets, that can slow the company down. The other thing that slows down the company is the morale when when that kind of um when that shift is happening and i've been in companies and i'm sure you've been in companies where for 6 months you're they're talking about oh we're we're going to have this new icp we're looking at new kind of alignment with with the types of companies that we're going after or we're starting to move up upstream and you know, marketers literally don't know where to put their budget because they don't know what segments mm-hmm. they're going after. And um, and and so it can hurt morale. It can really slow the companies down. So I think companies should be reevaluating this on a regular basis um, and, and identifying and putting their dollars behind the, the audiences that they think are most successful, going to create the most efficiency from a sales and marketing perspective from them. It makes a lot of sense given everything you laid out up until now, kind of what you do with this data and the multifaceted approach you take, because it sounds like it's a lot of work to set up the content strategy and some of the marketing strategy that you're doing. So yeah, like if you did this too frequently, it would almost feel like you're you're not like putting it out there long enough to gather any data back and like see how the marketing campaign's going, let things come in through your CRM and see what happens on the end of them. Um, and on the flip side, it's just a lot to continually like pivot your marketing strategy like that. So yeah, it seems like yearly is like a sweet spot, um, which which makes a lot of sense. Um, All right. So I want, so let's, let's wrap up this way. Um, You've talked about a stage. I haven't seen a lot. I might just not be paying attention to the right people, but um, I think, you know, one of the things with one of the ways that maybe stages get viewed too simplistically, it, especially with the demand capture, demand creation uh, framework is you articulated a stage that I don't see a lot of people talking about, which is feeling the pain, but not in market. Um, that's like, that's quite a, quite an interesting stage. And you mentioned you love that. There's a lot of ways to get in front of people like that. Obviously, you know, kind of the, the in market look, you know, dashboard software capturing, you know, someone looking for that 
fairly straightforward, you know, fairly clear. We talk about that a lot on the show, demand creation and brand building a whole, a whole other spectrum. But this yeah. is really interesting to me, a stage where they're feeling the pain, but they may not know that there's like a category of pain solutions, so, you know, solving problems out there. They don't know that you exist yet. Um, give me some examples of ways you look to address this. I know you mentioned specifically um, examples when you were at your time at Workable, um, doing hiring journey stuff, content like minimum bottom funnel, would that fall into that? Like however you want to kind of answer that, but give me some examples of that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I don't love the demand creation, uh, demand capture is because of the way that it has been, um, kind of interpreted where it's like search is always this demand capture route. So at workable, when I first started, uh, the pro inside the product, and I have it in front of me right now, they have six stages in the hiring funnel. Stage one is sourced candidates. Stage two is applied. Stage three is phone screen. Stage four is interview. Stage five is offer. And stage six is hired. So when I joined Workable, first we started out, I, my focus was on paid search. We scaled that up. And then year two of my time there, we were looking to build out content marketing. And about two years before I had started working there, an intern had come in for a summer and written 150 job descriptions, posted them on the website, and then uh, the, they got no traffic for like the first two months. Um, cut to the time when I was there two years later, all those job descriptions written by an intern two years previously that had kind of been ignored were now driving, I think, around 30,000 visits a month uh, wow. to the site. And so um, when we got into Google Analytics, we started to see, wow, there's this like really massive growth and they were continuing to grow and, and compound over time. And so uh, the job descriptions, that was like an interesting data point to us. So what we did was we took all those different stages in the hiring pipeline. And we said, what are all the different materials that people could be looking for during throughout the hiring process that might help us build demand for an applicant tracking system that's all going to bring these things together? So somebody who is searching for a job description is probably a week to two weeks away from actually posting that job online. Uh, onto job boards, Indeed, Monster.com, all of those places. Um, somebody who is searching for interview questions is likely in the middle of the interview process. They're likely, you know, going to Indeed and Monster.com all individually and managing the process and trying to keep track of all the client, all the prospects who it, or all the, sorry, potential candidates who had applied to all those various different job boards. And so we mapped out all the utilitarian content we could create for the sourced applied phone interview, interview questions, offer stage and hired stage. We mapped out all the different types of content we could create for all those people. So that was interview question templates, job description templates, offer letter templates, um, um, you know, uh, recruiting emails. We created a ton of content. You can go there today and still see it on resources.workable.com. Um, and so we 
and as we were creating that, we tried to get into the head of the consumer to think about the challenges that they were facing at that point in time and how Workable kind of brought all the whole hiring process into one platform for these customers. And we were, you, you need to remember, we were mostly targeting small businesses. And so they likely didn't have the big, you know, success factors, ATS that uh, some of the Fortune 500 companies were using. We brought it all into one roof. So we tried to get the, get, uh, create the content for the thing that they were searching for and introduce them to our product through that lens. So for like the job description people, they'd search for an account manager job description, they'd click on our result. We'd have a little kind of ad unit on the right-hand side that said, post this job description out to 15 plus job boards. They'd click on that and they came to an editable, editable format of the job description. And they were able to make some changes to it fill out their information, and they started the trial that way. So they're in this pain phase. They know they need to get the job description out there, or they know they need a job description. We're now giving them a way to get that job description, post it through our applicant tracking system, and have, have all the candidates that come in from those 15-plus job boards come into one singular uh, database for them to manage. So that is an example to me of someone who has a pain, they need the job description, and then we're introducing them to a product that can help save them a ton of time. Yeah, I love it. This is such a cool, uh, such a cool example. It's giving me a lot of ideas as you talk, but um, I like it for a couple of reasons. One, I love the idea of starting with the product and reverse engineering the content. Like I think there's a lot of listeners that maybe work at companies where either they're an agency offering multiple services or they're like a tool like ours where there's multiple features or tools within the product that can do different things. Um, when you, one like, you know, kind of nerdy in the weeds question that I'm, I'm curious about is when you would do, you know, let's say like the job description portion or like the evaluation phase or whatever yeah. it, it would be. Would you then like, I'm imagining you take the phase of like evaluation, you'd list out all this content you could write that would answer queries related to that. So, and this would probably be queries that are, you know, it's not so vague that they're just kicking tires or whatever, but they're actively like looking to solve this pain. They're not yet looking for a solution. Would you then, um, let's say this was like phase five within Workable as a product. And then, so you come up with 20 pieces of content you're going to feature around phase five, would they all have the same call to action tied back to that specific feature? And like, hey, sign up to try our, you know, application review, you know, thing, like whatever yeah. the tool was related, or was it for the, or did you use that as a chance to like in those 20 pieces of content, intro them to like, hey, by the way, there's a one and all, uh, you know, uh, a manage yeah. everything in one place way. Like what was your approach there? Yeah, so we were limited by resources just like any other Shocker. startup was. So we weren't always able to get dev resources for every single one of the funnels to kind of build a, a way in. But you know, at that time we did have Intercom where we knew what pages users had visited so we could create custom content within the product in order to send them to show them the offer letter stage. But yeah, we, we tried to do that for as many different uh, pieces of content. And part of it was looking at the volume of the content, uh, like 
you know, our job descriptions, I think we're driving hundreds of thousands of visitors on a monthly basis. Same thing with our interview questions. So we really focused on the places where we thought we could drive the most bang for buck. And then in the other cases, we tried to create customized job description or sorry, calls to action, not job descriptions. We tried to create customized job uh, calls to action that would kind of allow them to enter the product in thinking about that frame of mind. Mm, right. Okay. That, that so um I think that was really valuable. And then like that the fun was we got to work with um Airtable was a, a a client of ours for a while. And we got like that was another interesting use case where people are coming to Airtable looking for, you know, uh help with the CRM, help with the projects management tool, help with Gantt charting, help with all the different things that Airtable does. And they probably do a lot more things now. Um, but, you know, it's really about thinking about where the user's mindset is, what they're looking for, and then how do we create a nice bridge into that experience for the product? So they're more likely to use the product, more likely to become a qualified visitor or, or qualified uh, lead or qualified account for for the, the company we're working with. Yeah, this is awesome. This is a, such a great framework, a great stage for, I think, listeners to think through is this not yet actively looking for your category yet. They're not category right. aware maybe, or don't, you know, they're not looking at project management software where they're trying to, they're in this stage of like, we need to solve the problem that your software solves or that your, you know, agency right. or service solves. Um, and different ways to get in front of them and be useful to them at that stage and use that content to introduce them to yeah. the solution as a whole. And the original, right, was you look at where SaaS basically replaced spreadsheets for a lot of people, right? So uh, hiring management, CRM, a lot of this stuff was originally done in spread, literally in Excel. So like it was more popular 10 years ago for me, but like, for a lot of the companies we worked with, or I've worked with in my career, we would create templates like Excel templates for the uh, job yeah, that yeah. they're trying to do. And then we'd introduce, and then in the spreadsheet, we'd create a call to action that was like, do all this and more, you know, <laughs> right. with, with this application and get real time data and all the benefits of SaaS. And I think we're now at another inflection point as AI gets kind of built into almost every, I mean, I can't think of many software solutions where I haven't seen some type of update around the new capabilities around AI, but like that's making the SaaS was a nice step forward in terms of how smart the applications were being able to do calculations automatically, being able to tell you things. And now we're kind of getting to the next point. So I think that will create a lot of really interesting funnels uh, for folks yeah. to them adopt some of the the more interesting features as as we take the next step in in the evolution of software. And one thing I think you know what I love about what you do, the framework you use that you've unpacked a little bit here is there's always a need to just say they ask these basic questions like who are the best customers, who what are they coming to use your product or solution for? How can right. you use their own words to reflect in the messaging? Where do they hang out and spend most of their time? Right. What's valuable to them? And then like. Here's the four, five, two, if you subscribe to it, different stages that we see them in. What's our plan to hold their attention and build trust and awareness, you know, in that stage. So um, I love the holistic approach you use. Thank you for laying out the framework and, and everything that you um, 
that you shared here for for people who want to kind of you're really active on linkedin um where can people go if they're interested in working with your company and then where do you want them to kind of go if they just want to keep learning from you around these topics yeah so compoundgrowthmarketing.com uh if they if they're interested in learning more about our company compoundgrowthmarketing.com podcast if they want to listen and then on linkedin you can just search for john short uh and i like you said i'm creating a piece of content almost every day. Yeah. I see you on there all the time. So uh, you'll definitely keep, keep learning from John. So go for, we'll, we'll link to all this in the show notes if you're interested and want to go follow. All right, John, thank you so much for making this happen. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.